the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Um, Also, be ready to turn over to 1 Corinthians 11. We will look at both of these texts in a moment, but first I want to make a few introductory comments. This morning we are continuing in our series on the principles of the Reformation. The end of this month marks the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, which began on October 31st, 1517 in Wittenberg, Germany. And as a Reformed Church ourselves, we draw much of our spiritual heritage from the Reformation, and so it's right and fitting that we would think of what was done then and what God has continued to do in His church since. In the Reformation, God worked through faithful men and women to bring about reforms that sought to overcome much of the corruption that had overtaken the church by the 16th century. This church which had been trapped in darkness for many years. In fact, the corruption had become so significant that it was necessary for the reformers to articulate more clearly than had been done in previous centuries what were the marks of a true church. Questions like, how are we to tell a true church from a false one arose in the Reformation? And this is the question that we have at hand today. We are now in this series considering what constitutes a biblical church. We began to do this last week. We said in the Reformation there were identified three marks that must belong to every true church. Remember, this, this isn't a quest to determine all that is needed for a church to be completely healthy. But what is necessary for a church to be true? What are the marks of a true church? The answer, in every true church, there will be pure gospel preaching. There will be the right administration of the sacraments or the ordinances. And there will be the exercise of church discipline. Last week, we considered the first of these three marks, the pure gospel preached We said that worship is central in the life of the church and the preaching of the gospel is central in our worship. We must preach only God's word and we must preach all of God's word. This is the first mark of a true church. Today we will consider the second mark of the true church, the right administration of the sacraments or ordinances. What is a sacrament? What is a sacrament? What is an ordinance? Well, by definition, these ordinances are sacred rites or rituals that Christ has designed for his people to observe together under the new covenant. They are the rites that serve to mark the covenant community of Christ. In the Reformation, the sacraments became a critical issue of discussion. And so our aim this morning is to develop a better understanding of how the ordinances were wrongly understood by many in the church and then see how in the Reformation these misunderstandings were corrected by turning to the teaching of Scripture. Now I do want to say up front that we are not claiming that we must have a perfect understanding 
or administration of these sacraments in order to be a true church, or even claiming that we have a perfect understanding. What the Reformers meant by a right understanding of the sacraments is that we must not, as Calvin put it, do injury to the fundamental doctrine of religion in our understanding or administration of the sacraments. In his Institutes, Calvin goes on saying, So long as, the, as those articles of religion in which all believers should agree, as long as they are not suppressed while in regard to the sacraments, then the defects, whatever they may be, are such as neither destroy nor impair the legitimate institution of their author. So as long as a church, or as long as churches and their administration of the sacraments is not contrary to the gospel, it remains a true church. But, to quote Calvin once more here, he says, As soon as falsehood has forced its way into the citadel of religion, as soon as the sum of necessary doctrine is inverted, and the use of the sacraments is destroyed, the death of the church undoubtedly, undoubtedly ensues. Just as the life of man is destroyed when his throat is pierced or his vitals mortally wounded. And so I hope the significance of, while we're not seeking perfection here, we do want to have a right understanding of what we're going to do this morning when we partake of the Lord's Supper together. I hope the importance is pressed upon us And so now we will look together at the sacraments of a biblical church from Matthew 28 uh, 28 and 1 Corinthians 11 and a few other places. And our key words for our worshipers in training are sacraments, baptism, and communion. And before we consider them, consider the sacraments particularly of the Roman Catholic Church, which is where this Reformation centered around in the 1500s, I want to read these two texts straight away, and there are two elements in each passage that I want to highlight and ask us to hold in our minds as we consider these things together. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then the Apostle Paul, commenting on the Lord's institution of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23-26, through 26, we read, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread... And drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's Supper, the Lord's death, until he comes. Well, I want you to notice in both Matthew 28 and 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, two things. 
Do you see that in both, Jesus is the one who institutes these rites? And second, do you see the theme of perpetuity pervading both texts? In both texts, Jesus is the one who institutes the rite. And in both texts, there is the expectation of the practice of these rituals that they will continue as our confession of faith states, until the world's end. Jesus says, make disciples through baptism, and I am with you until the end of the age. 1 Corinthians 11, we're told that as often as we partake together of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. These two sacraments then, or these ordinances given by Christ to His church, are to be done until He comes again. And it is the recovery of the right use of these ordinances as the only two ordinances of the church that was so crucial in the Reformation. Well, keeping these things in mind, then our goal this morning, as we've sort of already said, uh, but bears repeating here, is twofold. We will, as briefly as we can, summarize the Roman Catholic teachings on the sacraments, This is important to understand so that we know what it was that the Reformers were seeking to correct. And then secondly, we will consider the key elements uh, to having a right understanding and administration of the ordinances. So first, the sacraments of the Roman Church. The Roman Catholic Church has what you would call a sacramental view of grace. This means that because man is a physical being, he can only perceive that which is spiritual through things that are sensible. Therefore, God, in their estimation, chose to make the sacraments the means by which man can receive the grace of God. Rome teaches that salvation depends on the sacraments. In the sacraments, grace is bestowed automatically on all who participate in the rite and who do not actively oppose its effect. This is why, as we said last week, the Roman Catholic Church has taught that there is no salvation outside of the church. It's because the church, in their mind, is the dispenser, the only dispenser of the means of grace, the sacraments. Well, since at least 1274, the Second Council of Lyon, the Roman Catholic Church has held seven sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, marriage, extreme unction, holy orders, penance, and communion. We'll briefly mention each of them. Uh, We'll devote a little bit more time to baptism, penance, and communion since it is with these three that, that Protestants tend to take the most umbrage. So first, baptism. Baptism in the Roman Catholic theology conveys the grace of regeneration and justification to the one being baptized. In baptism, a person is born again with a new heart, a new nature, a right standing before God through grace which is infused or poured into his soul. Yet this doesn't mean that the person is perfectly just and justified, they say, The baptized person now simply has a disposition to sin rather than sin's original sin's condemnation. And yet mortal sins being committed after baptism destroy the justifying grace received at baptism. Therefore, the person needs to be justified again. Penance, which we will mention momentarily, is Rome's answer to this question or to this need. 
Well, confirmation then confirms and increases the grace given during baptism. Marriage and matrimony, there is an infusion of grace where the couple is given grace which enables them to accomplish the real mystical union of marriage. In the sacrament of extreme unction, a priest prayerfully administers holy oil onto a person's forehead, most commonly but not exclusively as a final anointing grace before death. Holy orders are for those entering the priesthood. This infusion of grace bestows special powers upon the priest, that of absolution and consecration. In absolution, the priest forgives sins as part of the sacrament of penance. In consecration, the priest sets the bread and the wine of communion apart and transforms them into the physical body and blood of Jesus through the words of institution. The sacrament of penance, as I mentioned earlier, serves to help those obtain a second justification who have destroyed their initial justification by committing a mortal sin. And there are three elements to this sacrament. There is contrition, confession, and satisfaction. In contrition, the sinner feels sorrow for his sins because he has offended God. Now, much of what passes for contrition, unfortunately, is simply attrition. Feeling sorrow for sin because of its consequences. Contrition is a biblical concept that we should embrace. Attrition is not. So to whatever extent a person feels contrition for his sins, we would have no issue with that. We would encourage that. We should feel sorrow for our sins because they have offended God. But merely feeling sorry for them because of Pending consequences is not the right way. Well, that's contrition. What about confession? In confession, then, the sinner confesses his sins. While Protestants disagree that a priest is necessary or even able to forgive sins on God's behalf, the act of confession itself, where we If we mean by that that we're admitting our sins to God, to one another, we're seeking God's mercy, we're not opposed as Protestants to that either. And so taken separately or even together, the first two dimensions of the sacrament of penance, as long as they were properly defined, are not really the issue. It is the third dimension where the issue arises, and that is satisfaction. For the sacrament of penance to be complete and effective, the believer must do works of satisfaction. If the offense is lesser, the works required may be small. Perhaps saying a few Hail Marys or Our Fathers. If the offense is greater, the works may be larger. They may need to make a pilgrimage of sorts. The giving of alms is perhaps one of the most common works of satisfaction in the Roman Catholic Church. And almsgiving brings us to the sale of indulgences. One of the very kind of hot topics in the Reformation. An indulgence is simply a transfer of merit. You see, since God is holy, a person must accrue enough merit in order in this life in order to enter heaven. And since most people do not do this, they're not able to do this, they must go upon their death to purgatory, a place of purging. And once the person's remaining sins that haven't been forgiven upon his death, once they 
uh, are thoroughly cleansed, he is freed and granted entrance into heaven. And this process may take five minutes, five years, or five centuries. And in connection with the sacrament of penance, the church began to sell indulgences as a means by which a believer could buy enough merit to get out of purgatory or to get someone else out of purgatory or at least shorten their stay. Well, where does this merit come from? It comes, they say, from works of supererogation. Now, that is an irrigation, a superficial provision of water to stimulate growth, but irrigation, works that are more meritorious than God requires, such as a martyr's death or a sacrificial life. These are works done by the saints, and they are stored up in what they call a treasury of merit. And the church can then access this treasury and give this merit to a needy person in purgatory. I must say, this, is, this was one of the most offensive things about the theology of the church at the time to the reformers. Not because they or we do not believe in a treasury of merit. No, brothers and sisters, we do indeed believe in a treasury of merit. But our treasury is not filled by the stained and imperfect good deeds of the saints. For even if we have done all that we are commanded, we can only say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We can perform no works of supererogation. We cannot do more than God has required of us. Even if we live the best life we possibly could, as sinners, we have only done our duty. So no, our treasury of merit is not filled with the good yet imperfect deeds of the saints, but with the spotless, infinite, perfect, and inexhaustible righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Is Christ alone sufficient to redeem a person? That is the question. That is what is at stake in the sacrament of penance. Is salvation in Christ alone? We answer with the reformers with a resounding yes. Christ is sufficient. It is the merit of Christ and that alone which provides the only justification necessary or even possible for the salvation of my soul. This is why the Reformation is so important. This is the kind of thing at stake. Lastly, before we formulate our own understanding of the sacraments, let's consider communion in the Roman Catholic Church. The Lord's Supper, also called the Eucharist, meaning Thanksgiving, we have the Mass. And here, the bread and wine are transubstantiated and become the actual, literal, real, physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. We may raise an objection and say, but they look like bread and wine still. They would say, you see, the bread may look, taste, feel, and smell like bread, but it's really in its substance. What it really is, is the body of Jesus. The same is true for the wine. It's not really wine. It is the blood of Jesus. 
In the Mass, Jesus is re-sacrificed again and again as an offering to God. This was and is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And yet we learn in Hebrews 7, 27 and 10, 12 through 14, that Jesus was broken once for all. And His death is the full, final, and sufficient sacrifice for the sin of His people. This again highlights the importance of the Reformation in emancipating Christ's people from the darkness that had so enveloped the church. And while that was much too long in some sense to spend talking about those things, I do hope that it has given us a big enough window into the corruption that had overtaken the church to see what it was that the Reformers were fighting. So now we can, with the time that remains, look to Scripture and consider the sacraments of the Protestant church. Before we look at each of them individually, we need to make a few comments about our view of them in general. And it's important to know that unlike the monolithic Roman Catholic church, there isn't a one-size-fits-all understanding of the sacraments in the Reformation, in the Protestant Church. So rather than surveying all of Protestantism, we shall simply discuss our understanding of what Scripture says about the sacraments. And we will consider namely their number, their nature, and their efficacy. Their number, their nature, and their efficacy. In contrast to the sacraments, the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, the Reformers only recognized two. The reason for this is that there are only two ordinances that Christ actually instituted. As we noted at the beginning of this sermon from Matthew 28 and 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord Jesus sovereignly appointed only two sacraments to be continued in His church until the end of the world, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The other five sacraments in the Roman church honestly are derived not from Scripture, but from philosophy and tradition. The number of ordinances then, as we learn in Scripture, stands at two. Well, what about the nature of the sacraments? There are three elements that I want to consider here regarding the nature. Scripture teaches us that the sacraments are symbolic declaratory, and they are a means of grace. As a symbol, baptism symbolizes our death and resurrection with Christ and our cleansing from sin. We see in Romans chapter 6 this very thing. Verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. As we read in 1 Corinthians 11, we see that the Lord's Supper symbolizes the body and blood of Jesus Christ, broken and poured out for our spiritual life and nourishment. As a declaration, baptism proclaims our union with Christ and our identification with His covenant people. Matthew 28, Jesus commands all disciples to be baptized. 
Again, in 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord's Supper proclaims the Lord's death for His people until He comes. So they are a symbol. They are a declaration. Thirdly, they are a means of grace. Baptism and Lord's Supper serve to communicate grace to the recipient for his or her growth in holiness. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, we read, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? What is implied here is that there is an actual, a real, spiritual participation taking place between us and the Lord as we partake of the Lord's Supper in order to commemorate His atoning death on our behalf. This raises a question, however. What is the difference between our understanding of these things as a means of grace and the Roman Catholic Church's understanding? This brings us to the efficacy of the sacraments. I mentioned earlier, in the Roman understanding, the nature of the sacraments is that they convey grace to the recipient automatically. Um, the ex opera operato is a Latin phrase. means by the work working. That's simply by performing the rite and ritual. The sacrament itself conveys the grace intended, irrespective of the faith or faith lacking in the participant. In contrast to this, we believe that grace is conveyed upon the recipient in accord with his faith. In accord with his faith. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes in verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul writes here that it is through Faith that we are buried with Christ in baptism and raised with Him through the power of God. Baptism is a blessing to us through faith. The Lord's Supper is grace to us through faith. If the sacrament is received in faith, the Holy Spirit through the ordinance imparts grace and strengthens our faith in the taking of it. Well, finally, let's, let's consider each of these two sacraments. And there are three things about each of them that we will address briefly. First, we will look at the subjects and the occasion of the ordinance. Second, we will consider the mode or the elements of the sacrament as well as its administration and we will consider each of the sacraments' significance and ecclesiastical function. That sounds like it's going to take a super long time, but it's not. In baptism, who are the subjects? Who, are, who is to be baptized? Our confession of faith states that those who do actually profess repentance toward God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, are the only proper subjects of baptism. This is well in accord with the example we see all throughout the New Testament where baptism is consistently linked with those who become disciples of Christ. 
Not to mention Christ's command that we read earlier in Matthew 28 to baptize disciples. There's, there's one other text worth noting here. There are many we could look at. I want to mention just one, Acts chapter 2, where uh, at Pentecost, Peter is preaching. And when the attending Jews heard the sermon, they come to the end of it, they're cut to the heart, and when he's finished, they asked him what they must do to be saved. And Peter responds, repent and be baptized. In verses 37 through 39, he says, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises are for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Now some will claim this verse actually teaches uh, infant baptism. We as Baptists here don't baptize infants, but those who profess faith in Christ. And so some will look at this and say, it teaches infant baptism. Look, Peter says the promises are to you and to your children. But notice he also says they are for whom? Those who are far off, anyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And so, to whom are the promises of the gospel made? To all to whom God calls to himself. Who then are to be the recipients of baptism? Who are the ones who are explicitly baptized in this text? If you look in verse 41, those who received his word were baptized. This text in that verse teaches us as well about the occasion of baptism. When should a person be baptized? After he repents and professes faith. They repented and then were baptized. It's not the other way around. Well, what about the mode and administration of baptism? As to the mode of baptism, we hold that full immersion in water in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the proper administration of this ordinance. And it should be administered by those qualified and called to the gospel ministry. This is in accordance with how we understand uh, the practice of baptism in the early church, the primary meaning of uh, the Greek word used in the New Testament, baptizo, which where we get our word baptize. And passages like Romans 6 that I read earlier. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We see then that baptism is compared with burial. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. And therefore we bury ourselves, as it were, in baptism rather than sprinkling. Well, what about the significance of baptism and its ecclesiastical function? The significance of baptism is that it serves to symbolize our cleansing from sin and to mark our entrance into the covenant community of Christ. Baptism represents an inward change that has taken place in our hearts and marks us as one who is in Christ, as one who belongs to His body, the church. Again, remember, in Matthew 28, it is every disciple that is to be baptized. It is this rite of initiation that brings us into the covenant community. Well, what about the Lord's Supper? We'll do the same 
three things. The subjects of the Lord's Supper. Who is to receive the Lord's Supper? In Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, he gives them instructions regarding how they are to observe communion. His instruction is for the church. Therefore, it is for those who are members of Christ's church. It is for Christians when they are congregated, especially when they are together to partake of the Lord's Supper. As for its occasion, when should we do this? Well, when we are gathered together, namely in worship. We see communion being observed in Acts 20, verse 7. For instance, on the first day of the week, Sunday, they're gathered together to break bread. A text, uh, most likely a reference to the Lord's Supper, this breaking of bread. And since it is with bread and wine, or the fruit of the vine, that Jesus instituted His memorial meal in the Gospels, the proper elements of the Lord's Supper are just that, bread and the cup. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine that we should, we should not eat without discerning the body. So our practice here is to eat and drink the elements together, after a time of reflection and contemplation in order to come to the table together as one body, in one accord, with no anger and bitterness in our hearts toward one another. And like baptism, we hold that it's most appropriate that those given to the gospel ministry as officeholders in the church be the ones who oversee the administration of this ordinance. What about the significance and ecclesiastical function of the Lord's Supper? In the Lord's Supper, the faith of believers is confirmed in all the benefits belonging to them through the death of Christ. It is a participation in the, in the body and blood of Christ. And here we are spiritually nourished. We grow in grace. And the elements serve as a bond and pledge of the believer's communion with Christ and with one another. And it helps us to remember Christ's death for us. And one question that perennially plagues discussions on the Lord's Supper is that of the presence of Christ. Is Christ, as Rome states, physically present in the bread and wine? We answer no. However, while we want to emphatically reject the notion that Christ is somehow physically present, that His actual body, which we believe is now in heaven with God, that it is somehow physically present via the, the bread and the wine, we do want to be careful to not write out His spiritual presence from us altogether. In college, I was a systematic theology I was reading, the author was, was writing about this, this issue, and, and he said something that I... I, I think is, uh, it was kind of it was funny to me. It's a little helpful. He just says that for, for those who, who do believe in, in the omnipresence of God, it is ironic that in the Lord's Supper, that seems to be the one place so many people seem to think Jesus isn't. Now again, while it's not a physical presence, we, did, we saw in 1 Corinthians 10 that, that we are participating with Christ through though it's a spiritual participation. So while we deny that He's physically present in the elements, we do affirm that we are spiritually communing with Christ and with one another as we partake in faith 
And there the Lord conveys grace to us. Well, we've surveyed the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church and we've discussed uh, very briefly the sacraments of, of the Reformers. I want to I close with one practical lesson we can draw from the preceding considerations before we come to the table together. The lesson is this. The sacraments of Christ and His church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, Sacraments are visible words. What does this mean? And why is it significant? Over the last couple of weeks, we have stressed the centrality of the Word of God and the Gospel in our worship. We said worship is central in our church life. The Gospel is central in our worship. Preaching is the primary means of proclaiming that Gospel. So where do the ordinances fit in? Well, one objection that often arises to the centrality of preaching is that it would be much more helpful for people to have visual aids to help them understand these gospel truths. This is why some pastors will preach with props or show videos before, after, or even during their sermons. We as seeing creatures need visual illustrations. Thankfully, God has instituted two visual aids for communicating the gospel, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Every time you see a person buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life, you are seeing one of the two God-authorized visual depictions of the gospel. Every time we come together to partake of the Lord's Supper, you are seeing the other. Not only in the Lord's Supper are you seeing the gospel proclaimed, but you are tasting, touching, and smelling it as well. You see, God has not left us visual or kinetic learners all alone with nothing to help. In the sacraments, each and every time we share in them, we are seeing the gospel in visual form. One author asked this question, Could it be that the videos in our corporate worship services have increased because we have created a church culture that has undervalued the sacraments? He goes on to quote Calvin. Calvin writes, But as our faith is slight and feeble, Unless it be propped up on all sides and sustained by every means, it trembles, wavers, totters, and at last gives way. Here, our merciful Lord, according to His infinite kindness, so tempers Himself to our capacity that since we are creatures who always creep on the ground, cleave to the flesh, and do not think about or even conceive of anything spiritual, He condescends to lead us to Himself even by these earthly elements, and to set before us in the flesh a mirror of spiritual blessings. In the sacraments, God mercifully grants our desire for something physical, something visual. In the administration of the sacraments, the promises of the gospel are repeated to us. They are signified to us. They are sealed to us. The gospel of Jesus Christ, dead for sinners, risen and ascended to the right hand of God, now alive forevermore, 
king over death and eternity. This gospel preached and offered freely to each and every one of you here this morning is set before you in the sacraments. And so as we eat the bread and drink the cup together this morning, and our senses come alive as we partake, remember, just as real is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ broken for you, and the blood of His person poured out on your behalf. Whenever we have the privilege of seeing a baptism here, remember, just as real are those, as those waters rushing over this person, just as real is the blood and righteousness of Christ that has washed and rushed over you, cleansing you from sin, granting you a perfect standing in the Lord.